Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 368, is recorded live May 24th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where everything is growing. Joining me this week is Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, I'm doing a lot better than I was last week and the week before. And my basement is dry, which is always a plus. Well, let me rephrase that. Pretty much dry, which Mo- is a big plus. Mostly dry. Mostly dry. And the day was a gorgeous day. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful day outside. The weather, we're kind of getting the weather you would think we'd have this time of the year. I feel like we're a little bit behind, but it is so wet that uh, uh, hay prices are actually going up quite substantially. Normally, you can get a bale of hay, you know, three fifty, four dollars a bale, depending on the time of year. But right now, it's up to over six dollars a bale, and just because nobody's able to uh, get anything in because it's been wet all this time, got to cut it and dry it. So uh yeah I noticed I noticed I had some uh summer weed already planted on the road down to the um that new pet place there on uh Niles on the way to the Berrien Springs. Mhm. So I hadn't seen that. That's it's got at least a foot already. Yeah, it's it's that if your fields are dry enough to plant it in and it doesn't rot, uh things are growing like crazy. Yeah, especially weeds. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, Derek and Eric have shown up, and more will join, I'm sure, as the show goes on. We're on to the Thirsty Thursday time of the year where people are getting out and doing some diving, so some of those, as they finish up, will come in. Plus, the mermaid meeting was tonight, so everybody who's helping organize that that event, which is happening this weekend, uh, they are getting together and trying to coordinate and do their stuff. Let's go ahead and jump right on into the news, and hopefully I can remember to keep up on these these notes and paste them into the, the uh, chat room. Underwater cleanup continues on uh, Boracay. The island paradise of Boracay in Malay Ackland continues to be part of its six-month closure and rehabilitation. Lieutenant Ramil, oh my goodness, first article. Palabreca, at least that's what we'll call him for now, or Ramil, a commander of the Philippine Coast Guard and Malay Station, said several groups of scuba divers have been partnering with them on a voluntary swim to the depths of the island and pick up non-biogradable material to help rehabilitate and preserve the marine environment of Boracay. They're coordinating with us for security and joint underwater cleanup. These scuba divers could gather a minimum of four sacks of garbage within a day of their cleanup activity. He said that the series of underwater cleanup activities covers the water at a two and a half kilometer stretch of the island's beachfront, starting with station three to station one. Once completed, the cleanup may cover waters near Barragay Yapik, he added. He said another group of divers from private firm on Boracay have already requested for their security during the cleanup next week. He said the cleanup of the island commenced three weeks ago through an effort of Morake Business Administration of Scuba Shops, 
the Boracay Foundation, and other organizations of divers. So I'm not familiar with did something happen there? I'm not I'm not sure, but I'm curious what does it mean security during? Yeah, is that a rough area? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Well down as, in the- as a side as a side note, they were talking about four bags of garbage a day. You've seen the new events around here that anytime you go to any kind of body of water, you should always bring at least three items of trash when you leave. I like that idea. You know, many- yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a non-little, what's the big deal? You see three pieces of trash, make sure you take them with you and dispose of them properly. Yeah, if you, if you take more than you put in, eventually we, will, we can catch up with some of this mess. Right, and I think my wife was watching the Shark Tank the other day or something similar to that. That a bunch of kids that have developed a process for taking styrofoam cups, which we do millions and millions a day, and how they can, with certain chemicals added to it, reduce it down to carbon. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that specifically, but it does make sense that there is some sort of chemical reaction. It seems like I've seen probably as a it, it probably is appropriate for kids because I think that's kind of a, a kids' high school type of project. Uh, Other than I thought it was interesting, they said, can't be done, it can't be done, and they did it. And it's like I'm listening to this kid, and he's not even high school. Right. So I hope it's true. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, part of it is the the thing with garbage isn't so much just dealing with it once it's sorted. It's that labor that's involved with sorting it. Uh, right yeah. now, they said that all recycle the the value of all the recyclable materials has dropped uh, because there's there's – really no avenue for it. People, uh, uh, China has stopped taking it because uh, the labor costs, you know, their labor costs have increased. They're just saying that when they get sorted uh, garbage from us in the United States, uh, it takes them too much time to process it to even make it usable, so they don't want it anymore. Hmm. Yeah, and then in the uh, comment, somebody says, thank you for giving us this information on what's going on in Boracay. It's good to know that progress is being made on its rehabilitation. So it makes me sound makes it sound like there's something else going on. I was just going back to it, seeing if there's a, a back feed to something there. Well, no. That's the other item here. If it doesn't happen in the states, you don't hear about it. Oh no, no, it's which is which is really odd. When, when I used to live in Germany, there we'd be listening to BBC or you know something similar. We got a lot better coverage. It's so one-sided here, it seems like. Well, we're so focused, and there's an agenda. If we, if it's not meeting somebody's agenda for it to be in the news, it's hard for it to be reported on. Plus, the other part of it is that a lot of people just don't care. They can barely get excited about stuff they should. But that's another podcast. <laughs> and then here we go. Uh, this one's out of Clarksville, Tennessee, city of Clarksville, and the Cumberland River Compact. Join forces to clean a section of the Red River in, particip- in preparation for a new walking trail. More than 30 volunteers met April 29th and worked to pick up and remove trash from the old Craft Street Marina site along the wooded trail leading to it. The Cumberland was, a f- was funded by a grant from the Tennessee Valley Authority secured by the Cumberland River Compact. It was years of debris and trash, and it looks great now. Our next step will be cut up and haul off the metal from the cleanup, remove burnout boathouse, uh, said Jennifer from the Clarksville Parks Recreational Department, Recreational Department, volunteers removed more than 1,900 pounds of trash, 325 pounds of plastic and aluminum recyclables, and 186 tires from the area. Improving the old river marina is part of a larger initiative to connect another trail to the Greenway system, provide additional blue water 
Blueway access to the Red River. The old marina area will be used as a kayak and canoe access point. The trail begin at the current terminus at the north extension under the Red River Bridge behind the Waffle House. From there, it will be a circle behind the business on Craft Street and end in the old bridge abutment. Uh, they explain that the goal is, a, is to secure a grant to build a pedestrian bridge that is in the location to connect to the Greenway on the other side of the river. That side will have an added trail late this summer with the assistance of the Clarksville Street Department. Once a connection is made, a pedestrian and bicycle could start a tiny town road in northeast Clarksville and get to downtown on the Greenway. That many tires is a heck of a lot of tires. I'm looking at the pictorials of it, and uh looks a lot like ours except more. <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes me wonder what – they mentioned a marina. So you wonder, was it like a run-down marina, like just like a salvage yard? Uh, or is it just like a, a – you know, just an area that had been abused and ignored for a long time. Probably that. Uh, again, within the last week, there's an article in the Herald Palladium around here about asking for volunteers to come out and take care of part of the uh, river that's running through uh, Hartford and Waterville and Coloma as part of that, that new kayak trail. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know how many people they got, but they were talking shoreline and edge of the, edge of the water type cover. Just like this here. This is not underwater. No. But the thing is, if you see this on the shore, you know that underwater is just as bad. So you well, would... I, I can take a couple of pictures. I was doing uh, some pictures by uh, security of the, the, the fence by the airport. There's a couple of ravines, and I took pictures, and um, you could pull up several dump trucks of garbage people have just tossed in that ravine. And when I say garbage, I'm talking not food garbage, but part refrigerators, yeah. freezers. Dead air conditioners. But it, if you drive in any of the less traveled roads in the area, and if there is any section that's a dead end or goes near uh, like a rise that maybe leads down to the river, it seems that those yeah. are especially attractive for people just trying to ditch stuff. True. And that's why we always like to dive at the end of the, the road to go nowhere and the uh, embankment that used to have trash yeah. dumped over them. Yeah. And then this one, uh, the Tahoe Keys is testing a new technology to combat the spread of weeds in Lake Tahoe, California, as part of an ongoing effort to control aquatic invasive plants. The Tahoe Keys Property Owners Association, working with the league to save Lake Tahoe, is testing out a new technology never used before in Lake Tahoe. 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 Maybe I'm a little hungry. Uh, It's called a bubble curtain. The device installed on May 12th creates a barrier bubbles in the water column across the West Channel between the Tahoe Keys Lagoon and Lake Tahoe, used in other locations around the world, including places with currents, tides, and swells. To prevent debris from moving through an area, this is the first time this technology has been used to prevent the spread of aquatic invasive plants. An An infestation the size of the one in Lake Tahoe Keys is not going to be solved overnight, said Jesse Patterson, the deputy director of the league. What's exciting about this technology is offering possible way to combat, to contain the threat to Lake Tahoe while we work on a long-term solution for the infestation with the Keys Lagoons. The league has provided $6,500 in seed funding for this project and for equipment and software to monitor the infestation. This represents one of the most significant efforts in the recent years to control the spread of the invasive plants in Lake Tahoe, said Andy Kupana, uh, chair of the Tahoe Keys Water Quality Committee. This is a real milestone in our ongoing efforts to control the weed infestation and protection at Lake Tahoe. 
Aquatic invasive plants, primarily curly leaf podweed and Eurasian milfoil, have been found in warm, shallow waters around Lake Tahoe, infesting more than 90% of the Lake Tahoe Keys, 172-acre lagoons. Able to propagate by plant fragments, the association has implemented numerous programs from skimming floating fragments on the surface to backup boat station to dislodge fragments from boat propellers and water intakes, reducing their potential spread. The length of the perforated tubing snakes along the bottom of the east channel fed by air compressor on the shore to push bubbles in a sheet to the surface. Scuba divers installed the bubble curtain in a V formation to dive submerged plant fragments into the water surface and then to the edge of the channel to ease collection removal. An additional benefit of the bubble curtain technology is will trap stray fragments without impeding boat activity. The association has also purchased two sea bins, autonomous devices designed in Australia to collect debris in the water and placed on either end of the bubble curtain to capture and remove fragments as they are corralled. If this pilot proves to be effective, the solution we can turn to other infested marinas around the lake, said Patterson. Projects is one of many ways the, key, the Tahoe Keys property owners has worked to address the infestation, building a decades of scientific evolution and planning to find out more what the Lake Tahoe Keys is doing to address the invasive plants. Go to their website, which you can Google it and find out. Uh, do you think this is a little bit of snake oil salesmanship going on here? I don't know. I, I Well, one, I couldn't get that to come up. My computer kept saying, danger, danger, don't open this website. So I didn't. <laughs> but aside from that, I was listening to the description. And one, we have air bubbler systems here. We commonly use ours for prevention of ice right. going around and, and crushing your dock. Now, the other aspect we use and have used it at Paw Paw uh, and um, Indian Lake and a few other ones that I know of is using air bubblers in an enhancement of making the nutrients under, you know, in the subsurface uh, biodegradable by mixing them more with oxygen so they'll degrade them and improve the quality of the water. Now, I really don't understand how an air bubble curtain is going to prevent, you know, current flow of letting the, the parts and pieces go by it. Because if it comes up, I can understand at the surface, but once it rotates back down, unless you've got a really good wall of, of bubbles, how does that stop it? You and that's, know what I mean? It seems like you yeah. have a current to go around it. Well, and that's what it sounds like these other placements are. But I, if you're going to do, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it, I'm skeptical. And then just the way when I got to the end, all the pitching of this organization, that organization, it almost sounds like people have been bitching at them for not being able to fix it. So this is just a little bit of smoke and mirrors to create the illusion. Uh, you know, $6,500 in the scheme of things probably for that association is a drop in the bucket. So they're really not out much. Uh, and I can't say they didn't try it, but I, I can't believe it's really going to do anything. You know, plants don't care about the bubbles. Um, you know, are they doing like an aquarium fish tank style approach where they, it's going to push it and collect it. But like you said, it's just going to circulate back down. Uh, uh, depending on how wide it is also, it'd be interesting to see uh, what the system is called and to find out it had been used somewhere else with us. Uh, and again, a follow-up. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. There's a website that they've got, which is called keysweedsmanagement.org which is their website uh, for that organization. And then there's another one, Keep. I'd be careful when I say this. If you break the words in the wrong spot, it did something else. Uh, keep, oh, keeptahoblue.org. I won't tell you what I thought it was in. 
And we have the Summit County Water Rescue Team deploy state-of-the-art underwater drone. The team has acquired a piece of equipment seemingly taken from a James Cameron movie. The remotely operated underwater vehicle ROV is a drone that will help the agency recover bodies lost in lakes and reservoirs. Sergeant Mark Watson of the Summit County Sheriff's Office said his agency is the only one in Colorado to have such a device. The remotely controlled vehicle will help team members out of harm will keep team members out of harm's way. High altitude diving can be dangerous and safety is our top priority, Watson said. The drone weighs about five pounds. It can dive up to a thousand feet with its four four thrusters and travel around at four knots with a current. It is equipped with a mechanical claw that can grip up to five pounds of pressure which they say is enough to grab a body and pull to the surface while being reeled in on its cord, which is interesting. I'm curious about what cord. Well, I, I think it's tethered is what they're referring to. And if you look at the photos in the article, you can see somebody, oh, that's, that's a tether to a diver. Huh. I thought maybe that was a tether to the ROV or maybe it is. And there's just a diver observing it. Yeah, that's what it looks like now that I, I went to the same picture. I just wonder what that cost, and I'm curious about the aspect of, you know, in a lake or something that is probably useful in the river, not so much because it said four knots with the current. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, well, turn around and try to go the other way. I, I'm not sure how effective that is. Second part is I thought generally we assumed a sunken body weighed approximately 10 pounds, not five, if they ingest water in their lungs. I'm not real sure on that, but even, mm-hmm. you know, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Be, because, you know, I wonder what the cost, excuse me, what the cost was. And did it say how many, uh, what kind of time did it have? How many hours it could work? No, they didn't, they didn't say anything, but I'm, I'm assuming if it's on a tether, then it's just, it's indefinite. Uh, it's, they may be supplying the power down the tether line. Yeah. I watched the muse one, um, in the river when we were trying to find that body last couple of months ago yeah the kayaker mm-hmm. and there's no way in blazes that uh it would work until you know four or five weeks later and then it was in the shallows in a in a protected environment where they manually let it down under the where it looked like there may be entrapment items right so just waited and they were using the weight of it down more, so more it really like it wasn't like a drop cam yeah basically mm-hmm but still, you didn't want to put a diver in that predicament. No, you know, if you it's can, more of a strainer. Yeah, if you can do it without risking a diver. Uh, and, and if it goes down a thousand feet, and there's a lot of lakes, Tahoe, and, and places like that that are deep, that's what you want to have. You don't want to put a diver down. You want to find it with the side scan, validate it with the video, and tag it if possible. And if not, tag it, put a clamp on it with a float that goes up. And then that's a lot easier to recover it. Yeah, and then uh, in the chat room, they uh, Eric linked to a website, CanadianPond.ca Products, and they're selling the air bubbler curtain to prevent floating weeds and debris, which I think that makes sense in a pond. You see that in a lot of ponds around here. Just to a keep... pond is different. No current flow. Right, and you're and you're doing that to keep things circulated so it doesn't get stagnant. And then if you get you know, in aquariums, we call it duckweed, but I don't know. You know, there, there's pond equivalents of floating weeds that you, they'll, they don't like being in, in water that's moving. So maybe that's part of their strategy. I think one of the most important items they mentioned that a lot of people don't realize is when you drive your boat 
through milfoil, all you're doing is enhancing its growth because all those little pieces are capable of re, uh, yeah. regrowing, basically. Yeah, if, if you've got a nutrient-rich water body, which we tend to around here because people have their their summer homes and they and they like their lawn all the way to the water's edge, and, of course, that grass has to be super green, so you fertilize it real heavy, and then you get the rain like we just had, which then takes 90% of that fertilizer you put in the lawn and puts it in the in the pond, and you've got a recipe for super-growing weeds. Yeah. And then here we have a story out of, um, assuming the UK, thedailybeast.com, the Loch Ness Monster's existence could be proven with eDNA. team of scientists has proposed using actual science to figure out if the mythical creature allegedly lurking in Scotland's river Ness is actually real. Their proposal, using an environmental DNA or eDNA, a sampling method already used to track movements in marine life, when an animal moves through an environment, it leaves behind residual crumbs of genetics by shedding skin and scales, leaving behind feathers and tufts of fur, perhaps some feces and urine. Scientists think these residual clues left behind by a monster like that of the Loch Ness could be collected by eDNA and subsequently used to prove its existence. This DNA can be captured, sequenced, and then used to identify that creature by comparing the sequence obtained to a larger database of known genetic sequences from hundreds of thousands of different organisms. Themes Spokesman Professor Neil Gemmel of the University of Ontago in New Zealand told Reuters, It's certainly not the first time that people scientifically minded or not have attempted to track the legendary monster's existence. A 6th century document chronicles a tale of an Irish monk named St. Columbia who banished a water beast to the bottom of the river Ness. Ever since, people have tried to prove the monster's nickname Nessie. In 1934, an amateur photographer claimed this photograph of a long... Brontosaurus-like neck protruding from the choppy waters is proof the Loch Ness Monster's existence, but analysis at the turn of the century showed it was definitely not the case. What appeared to be Nessie was in fact a sea monster model atop a toy submarine. Scientists have long been intrigued by the monster's potential existence, though countless scuba diving and sonar experiments have turned up empty-handed. In 2003, a BBC-sponsored mission that used 600 sonar beams and state-of-the-art satellite tracking to sweep the river, of any evidence the monster turned up empty. A pivotal year in the hunt for Loch Ness Monster was in 2016. A team sent an underwater robot to probe the murky bottoms of River Ness and did turn something. A 1970-era's movie prop using the film of a rather apt move filmed for such a discovery, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Later that year, another amateur photographer claimed to have photographs that showed up three slippery humps glistening the sun, which insisted was proof of Loch Ness Monster's existence, but others downplayed it, saying it could be indicative of other creatures living the river, three jumping salmon, three mid otters mid-swim, perhaps even three slippery seals, or a, simply a trick of light and depth of the water's famously rocky waves. A mirage that appeared to show a slithering reptile but was nothing more than an optical illusion. The International Group of Scientists hopes that their mission, which begins next month, could finally put a mystery to the monster of rest. Gemmel said that while the monster itself was a Book for the project will actually serve as a biological survey of the organisms within the river nests. There is an extraordinary amount of new knowledge that will be gained from the work about organisms that inhabit Lake Ness. Gemmel said that the university press statement citing new strains of bacteria and invasive salmon as potentially important understanding of changing the Scottish River ecology. The proof or lack thereof of the Loch Ness monster will be presented in January 2019. Can you think of all the fun you could have with that survey? <laughs> 
It would be interesting. I tried looking. I had seen, remember I told you earlier, I had seen an article or actually a video that was posted on Facebook. I cannot find it now. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be a new video of the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Yeah, and it was the day I saw it, but I, I just went back through my phone one, and I cannot find it. See, here, here's what I think somebody should do, is you go to a zoo that's got a lot of primates, and then you could sprinkle the feces there along the river at night when they didn't see you, and then they would have proof for sea monkeys. <laughs> uh, you're so devious. Let me paste this next one into the chat room. Well, we're on that DNA track. They have a bone recovered from a shipwreck, and they just—they're pretty sure is not the notorious pirate after all. They're, the fragment was from a Cape Cod shipwreck, and they thought it may have been the pirate Samuel Black Sam Bellamy, but it turned out not to be. The Windup Pirate Museum in Yarmouth announced Thursday that DNA testing determined the bone was from a male with general ties to the Eastern Mediterranean area, but not Bellamy. The museum enlisted forensic scientists to extract DNA from the bone fragment and compare it with DNA from a living Bellamy descendant. The wine death sank in 1717, taking 102 lives. Bellamy's bodies was among 40 never found or identified. The wreck was discovered in 1984. Most of its treasure is thought to remain on the ocean floor. Forbes has listed Bellamy as the highest earning pirate ever, plundering about $120 million worth of treasure. That must be a narrow version of, uh, version of pirate. <laughs> because there's a lot of people in Wall Street, I think, that have uh, stolen more than that. I just, I think it's interesting how people come up with some of these hypotheses. You know, Cape Cod shipwreck, blah, find well, a bone, must be a pirate. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, the, the thing is, this is all about everybody's trying to fund or get recognition or get likes or social media posts. And one way of doing that is if you if you said, I found a bone, I think it's somebody we've never heard of and probably was inconsequential, you probably don't get any articles, but you put it to a pirate and you're picked up by a thousand newspapers and websites within hours. And okay. we're talking. Have, have you seen the big, I shouldn't say hubba, but Confederate goal? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Now, you, you, you look at the two hands, you know, one is good PR for diving. On the other hand, you got the other people who say it's so freaking wrong. It, you know, reality shows, you know, people talk about false news. Yeah. Well, when you have things like reality shows which are not correct, not true, isn't that the same thing as false news? You're spreading yeah. information that is not actually accurate or valid. And yet they're making it sound like, well, it's really true after all. Yeah. And, and what we need to do is uh, we'll, we'll bring everybody up to speed on this. What, what he's referring to <laughs> is on Facebook, uh, Kevin from the show uh, did a post and he, and he said right up front, you know, he's not going to, he doesn't want to badmouth anybody. He just wanted to, you know, say kind of what his opinion on, just kind of a comment on the show. And he was trying to elicit a response, which was getting people to talk about whether this was good promotion to get someone interested in scuba diving. And he did not get the result I think he was hoping for or in the spirit of being friendly because uh, there's a lot of people who took exception to the show in general. And if you haven't watched it, I think it's one of the Discovery Channels or TLC or you know that, that whole Discovery Network. And the premise is, is that uh, you've got uh, a school teacher up in Muskegon, and uh, 
as a as a hobby or something is he does some research on uh, different topics. And this one was he had a premise that there was gold that was brought into the area, and he he weighed a he he laid out a pretty interesting case of why you could think that somebody had gotten funding beyond the normal sources. Uh, he somebody had had formed the bank. And they said, you know, here he went off to the, the Civil War. He comes back, he forms a bank. And when you look at all the money he said he had to start the bank, it just doesn't add up to how he could have as much money as what he had spent. And the show goes on for, for many weeks, and it culminates in them actually diving on uh, shipwrecks looking for this gold that they've purported, uh, the, the proposed that's going to be there. Uh, but it, it's it's kind of uh, and some people com- compared it to ancient ancient aliens, and uh, it was it was interesting just to see some of the people who commented because there there's some of the the people in there have who are commenting have actually been on some of these discovery shows not doing too much different. So that's what I what I thought is 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 that why they they were coming so uh, like they were so upset with the show is that they've been you know maybe they feel like they were victims of. Uh, of this, because whenever you're on one of those reality shows, they've got to make it interesting, and they're going to. Well, no, wait a minute. Why? Why do why they do have, you have to lie? Yeah. Why do you have to do that? Well, are they are they that, lying, that, that, that or are they stand just by itself? It doesn't stand alone, right? Or are are they are they lying, or are is stuff being taken out of context just to make the story more interesting? Are they enhancing it when they know better? Well, I think that happens. People get caught up into it, and they shouldn't. You know, yeah, I, I thought the one comment I really enjoyed was they were talking about whether you agree with it or not, and I love Fred's. I'm not going to tell Fred who. Uh, this is something that ought to be doused with gasoline and burned to cinders, then covered with acid, stirred, loaded into a rocket, shot into the sun. Now, don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> well, the individual who wrote that, obviously, is is a well-known individual who is highly involved in marine mm-hmm. discoveries. So, and again, pros and cons, yeah, it does publicize, get people interested, but by the same token, ah, well, I, I, this, in this age of false news, to me, reality shows are false news because they're choreographed, and they're put forth as not being. Even the BBC Wild Kingdom, things like that, it's, again, the emphasis is what they want at that particular time. It's not necessarily a neutral right. viewpoint or what have you. and. In this day and age with everything's false news and taking it out of context, that's part of it. That just seems to be our culture, and it's, I think it's unfortunate. I prefer not to see it. That way. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm for telling as much truth as, as possible. I don't know why. Well, I know why. I mean, we, we just we said it. They're, they're trying to make yeah. it interesting to get, get, more, get more ratings and get more money. And I'd like to know, that would be something that would be interesting to disclose. Is if you're on the show, do you get anything, or is this everybody, you know, doing the Tom Sawyer principle, where you know uh, people just want to be seen, or they think it's fun, and they're not getting anything out of it? Don't know. I I haven't watched it myself. I've done some research on it back when they were trying to prove a point why mm-hmm. it could be there, but that's about it. That's like Oak Island. Yeah, well, it's and it's the same. It's the same people doing it. It's the same. Uh, 
I think it's the same production company because Marty uh, from Oak Island uh, is the one that they were using to kind of introduce it. And then he was the one supposedly going to fund it for when they went out on the lake. Well, I, you know, in one aspect, if I needed a job and I could be a reality actor and they're going to pay me money to follow me around for a year, I could probably, how high do you want me to jump? Yeah. That's like people used to ask me what I used to do after I retired and went on the road. I was an industrial prostitute. And they said, excuse me? I said, well, it's, you know, you pays your money and you tell me what you want. And if I want to do it, I get my money. And if I don't, I say goodbye. Industrial prostitute, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's another story. (laughs) Well, then here we have a shipwreck and they're wondering, is it a 400 year old Dutch pirate ship? East Carolina University archaeologist working in a partnership with the National Museum of Bermuda said that it may be one step closer to linking an unidentified shipwreck site to a nearly 400-year-old story of stranded Dutch privateer or pirate ship. The wooden sailing ship described by the 5th Bermuda governor as the Dutch pinnacle traveler from the Caribbean reportedly grounded on the rocks in Bermuda's West Reef in 1619. Islanders rescued the Dutch and English crew of the down-on-the-luck buccaneers and said they were repatriated within a year. The ship itself was reportedly left to wind and weather, disappearing in the next Atlantic-born storm. The National Museum of Bermuda explained that new archaeological evidence, however, suggests that Bermudians may have been secretly uh, lightering. Is that what that is? Lighterd, lighterid, lighterid? The cargo ashore and floated the ship near the reef, hiding in the shallow bay to the salvage arms, lumber, and hardware, essential commodities from an isolating but burgeoning colony. The wreck site may represent one of the earliest colonial-built Dutch vessels discovered in the Americas, and earliest and perhaps only fully archaeologically documented privateer pirate vessel, according to Dr. Bradley Rogers, ECU Professor of Maritime Studies. Combined history and archaeological studies will continue and could reveal new details about the life in the 17th century, wrecking practices and early settlement period in Bermuda. In 2008, Dr. Rogers examined the wreck a wreck located in a quiet harbor the west end of the island, a short distance from the Dutch pinnacle last known position on the reef. He recognized the wreck to be an early and significant vessel type. In May 2017, Dr. Rogers returned with a team from ECU along with NMB, mounted the first scientific exploration of the site, archaeologically examining, mapping, and recording the exposed sections of the wreck. Remains are well known to locals, but their origins are not. The ship remains appear to be early and significant, and the archaeological evidence demonstrates unmistakable traits of northern Dutch design technique that have not been used for in uh, four centuries. It's not uncommon during the 17th century to salvage ships in the west end of Bermuda, he said, out of sight a customs official in the east end to avoid taxes and levies on the goods and materials retrieved. Salvage marks are plentiful on the disarticulated wreck, though many of the fasteners and planks have been removed, many of the timber remains in great conditions, he said. There's much work to do and complete the analysis of the shipwreck, according to Dr. Rogers, as it takes extensive archival research, archaeological analysis, and funding to fully verify the find. And it's one of the more confusing wreck sites we've ever studied, as it's completely taken apart down to the fasteners. However, the team has documented enough of the site to identify ship construction techniques matching those described in Dutch treaties of the 17th century. In addition, the wood has been identified as Greenheart, 
a New World timber historically harvested in Dutch trading territory of South America and a few artifacts seen reflect Dutch Northern European heritage from the early 17th century. Further investigation should shed more light on the 17th century Bermuda and its early settlement, especially pertaining to salvage ships in distress. The economics and impacts of salvage and early settlement of Bermuda has not yet fully been explored by the academics and provide fascinating window in the first Bermuda survived in an isolated environment. So does this sound like, uh, if I'm understanding it, they, they think that the this is a shipwreck that went down. It wasn't refloated, but it was dragged over to the spot to be salvaged? I'm not sure, but the term light airing, there, there's a, it's like a flat-bottom barge and you used to take it out to the ship unload it because it couldn't come in close enough because it was too heavy and the draft was too much. So you would lighten the cargo by taking it off and then you could refloat the ship or in or this case, drag it into shore. Ah, uh, okay. So, so there, that is the correct term. Okay. And then also that would explain what they're talking about. You would do that on this other side of the island because in doing that, you're, you're getting cargo, which should be taxed and they want to avoid the tax. Absolutely. Ah, so you're avoiding the ports. Okay. Yeah, I think they used to do that during bootleg days, too. Yeah, yeah. And if you drink it, too, that's also lightering it quite a bit. Uh, and there were two articles for this next story. Uh, the first one I couldn't get to reload, but I did have it earlier. And this one actually seems to be more up to date. And what it is is that there's an ROV that found this ship. It, uh, it was an 18th century shipwreck and... Uh, they're assuming that there was billions of dollars worth of treasure and spoils. Uh, it was found by a robotic submarine. Uh, the wreck of the Spanish ship called San Jose was was found in 2015 off the coast of Cartagena, Colombia, according to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. It's been called the Holy Grail of shipwrecks. It uncovered a treasure including gold, silver, emeralds on the ship, which were sunk in 1708 during the War of Spanish Succession. To find the wreck, a team led by maritime archaeological consultants utilized an underwater robot called Rima 6000. The Rima 6000 was the ideal tool for the job since it was capable of conducting long-term missions over a wide area. The newfound treasure will be displayed in a museum built by the Colombian government. According to a statement, the exhibit will include other artifacts in the ship, such as cannon and ceramics. Um, what they didn't say in this article, but the other one did, is that the wreck is currently in dispute. Uh, I understand that Colombia is claiming it along with Spain. <clears throat> well, you figure $17 billion, people are going to be wanting that. And again, 2,000 feet below, keep saying that. You find it, you take it, and you don't say nothing. Yeah. Uh, this this is one where this is the, the Spanish government was also the one that got the uh, that big gold wreck that Odyssey uh, Marine Exploration had, had found, and uh, the Spanish government ended up winning that one. I wonder what that Remus 6000 costs. They said that is actually owned by a private individual and that uh, it's been... Oh, yeah, hedge fund Ray, what's his face? Yeah. Yeah. From the Dalo Foundation? Yeah. Okay. So a billion to five billion. Yeah, well, they're they're doing it. It's it's like bragging rights for these guys. Or it's a, there's some tax dodge or sink of money they're able to do. You know, it's a their nephew who happens to own this company and yeah, you, you, things like that can work out that way. Yeah. 17 billion though, isn't a, is a little bit of an enticement. Don't you think? I would. Yeah. I mean, well, how about just 2000 feet? You, you know, you can salvage it nowadays. 
It's, it's almost becoming commonplace. Well, look how beautiful those cannons are. Oh, absolutely. And the visibility. Gorgeous. Um, yeah, you, you have to take a look at these photos. Uh, yeah, those, those cannons. You could just take those cannons. It looks like they're probably in nearly identical condition as the one they went down. I wonder if they're brass. And well, at that deep, there is no sea life on them either. No. I mean, you're, you're seeing you some... Yeah. yeah, that that photo you can see, I, I would almost call those... Uh, uh, what, are, what are the fish that we have on our wrecks? Uh, the, I want to say... Well, gov- you have lo- lo- the lawyer fish, and then you got the gobies. Gobies. These, these guys almost look like the gobies here. They do, don't they? They, they, they do. I was going to say guppies for some reason, but the gobies, it looked as... I was looking at that, and there's a lot of them there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, just in that one frame. I'm just looking around in the, in the shadows around the sides. There's a lot of stuff down there, man. I mean, you could use a claw and pull, pull these cannon up. Oh, yeah. And they've got handles. I mean, you, if you had an ROV. Hey, look how embossed they are. They're yeah. great. Yeah, you, could, you could take an ROV. It could attach a cable on, and you could just clamp the cable on and bring it up. Yep. I mean that one the, the the front end of it there there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. That looks like you could just take it out and fire it. Right. Yeah, it does. I mean the edges are all clean and sharp. Uh, I I've been to a lot of museums with cannons and and they've been all painted up and everything. Everything's kind of rounded and and yeah, they, these are like they just brand new. Yeah, they still look brass or bronze, don't they? Yeah, I'm 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 guessing. It's Oh, did you go down further? Scroll down. Well, I, oh my I don't. Goodness. I think you're 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 probably on a different article than I am because I've only got the two uh, the two photos. Oh, no, I just I just went down. There are bottles you'll kill for <laughs> jugs, bottles, yeah, the, bases. Oh my goodness! Yeah, there's there's one where uh, yeah, almost like you call man Fora or something. But the yep. Oh yeah, that's awesome. So, and with the gold, you know that they'll have the money to go and bring up all this other stuff while they're at it. And now I look back at that photo after looking away for a second, you can still see timbers. Yes. Wow. That is really nice. Beautiful. And just think, these are, this is just the beginning. There's, there's more of these to be discovered, and, and you're now getting to depths where stuff really does uh, keep for a long time. Well, unless if there's more than you on board, it would be hard to keep your mouth shut. You know about where it is and how much you got out of it. Oh yeah. But the temptation would be there. Well, this is a plot of some movie. You know, it's where the 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 greedy guy offs everybody else and says, "Hey, they all jumped overboard." Yeah. And then we've got one final story, and I I keep wondering this this is one of those things that I would love to do. It says a man builds a dive site in his own backyard, and uh, the article goes on to talk about. Uh, he built a dive site with an underwater tunnel measuring five feet by fifty-four feet, which you can dive through. Uh, he's in the state of Utah, and there actually is a film showing his uh, dive site. Uh, his private spot is one hundred and forty-one feet or forty-three meters long, fifty-nine feet or eighteen meters wide, twenty-six or eight meters deep, and contains one point four million liters of water. He says it's for practicing my skill without having to travel. <laughs> Uh, that's that's what I want to do. Any cost associated with that? Uh, they didn't say, but usually when you see somebody doing stuff like this, they're usually some form of you know construction or building contractor where 
you know, you've got the, the tools and the people and the know-how and you just kind of do whatever you can. So you're between jobs and you got a crew and you don't want to lay them off. You say, hey, spend four or five days here. That would be my guess, but they don't say in the article. Pretty nice looking though, isn't it? Sure is. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. Let's see. Uh, has anybody been getting any diving in? Well, I know Kevin went up off of South Haven and checked out the rubble field. Um, my understanding, several people were trying to get out today, including Karen, but I don't know, and I haven't seen any postings on how successful they were. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I know Big John has uh, got a very interesting toy mounted on his boat that he's not showing too much of, so I think he's ready to go out and start doing a little bit of searching. And I think everybody is pretty much getting involved in the uh, Mermaid Fest this uh, weekend. Yeah, that's going to be a, an interesting event. Hopefully I can find some time to break away and do it. But we got quite a few muddies who are helping Karen out and getting that going. Yeah. As we talked about in last episode, we're, we're hoping that nobody falls in. Uh, and I have to apologize. Uh, I, I was hoping to have some of the mermaids on this week for the show. But I just ran out of time to do all the logistics and organizing. So uh, we're still going to invite them on if they're willing to come on and maybe get them next week or coming up. So uh, give them some time to promote being a mermaid, which has to be a interesting proposition. I just thought of something on the off thing. Uh, we were talking jokes earlier, but, you know, mermaid, uh, mermaids don't have sex, correct? Oh, the, 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 according to that joke that we can't tell, yes. No, not even with the joke, though. Can they? I'm just thinking out loud here. Oh, you I mean? I don't remember how that works in real life. I have, I've never heard. Because I, I heard they didn't, but by the same token, if they didn't, how are they made? Okay. Now how, they, you know, how do you get more of them? I, thought, okay, I now, have to look that up now, darn it. Yeah, darn it. We, so we're going to go the great big book of everything, the Internet. Okay, so myth. Well, I won't do it now, but I'll look at it later. We do have a safety item today. Oh, you do? Well, of course. I did okay. use it last week. Okay. Okay. What I'll just do is that um, I just wrote all this down. I'm going to move my mic over here so I can read and talk at the same time. Okay. Did I lose you? Hello? Did I lose you? Yeah, you were gone for a moment. Oh, okay. At what point did you lose me? Uh, when you said, let me get my papers close to here. Oh, sorry about that. Good. I'll start back over. Okay. Okay. This is called Lessons for Life. Uh, diver runs out of air at safety stop. And then I mentioned that we were posting a lot of these in our newsletter every month and discussing, discussing them at the meetings. And generally, the consensus says, how could you be so stupid? But by the same token, if you're doing a mixed bag, a lot of people, somebody could be that stupid. And hopefully other people is aware and you dive to the experience level of the least experienced person. But let's go back to this one. The diver, with only 10 dives, including her certification dives, Judy wasn't 100% sure she wanted to keep diving. It seemed a lot of work. It didn't seem to be getting any easier. She was 52 years old and healthy, no medical condition that would keep her out of the water. Still, she wondered if she was fooling herself about why she decided to learn to dive in the first place. She was certified in the cool waters in a local mountain close to her home. She was hoping diving would be fun. She loved looking at the pictures in magazines and dreaming about exotic destinations. 
in hopes of finding a place where the diving would be more enjoyable, Judy booked an offshore dive trip on a boat located a few hours from her home. The trip wasn't exactly exotic, but at least the water would be warmer and she'd wear a thinner wetsuit than the one she wore diving in the mountain lake. That had to be, you know, and make things a lot better. She was sure she would see some colorful fish. She was looking forward to doing that, the dive. Judy geared up as the boat headed out from the dock. She was a little nervous about the dive since it was her first without her instructor or dive buddies back home. It was also her first ocean dive. Still, it was a beautiful day and the conditions seemed perfect. She added the same amount of weight to her BC integrated pockets as she had at home. The boat's dive master could sense she was a novice diver, so he watched her as she geared up and was surprised at the amount of weight she put in her BC pockets. She had asked for 30 pounds of lead. Now, divers on that boat typically use between 12 and 16 pounds. The dive master suggested to her that since she was diving with a thinner wetsuit than she used at home, she should leave some of the lead behind. So Judy took some of the weight from her weight pockets, but when the dive master turned his back to help another person, she put the weights back in her BC pockets. She had always dived with 30 pounds at home in the lake and was, was not comfortable making that change. Now we talk about the accident. Several other divers on the trip noted that Judy struggled during the dive. She seemed to be constantly adjusting her buoyancy underwater, adding air and then letting it out. At the end of the dive, she headed back towards the boat with the group, but after the safety stop, she bolted the last 10 feet to the surface on her own. She had run out of air, which caused her rapid ascent. When she surfaced early, she missed the tagline, and the surface current pulled her away from the boat. The rest of the divers swam underwater to the end of the tagline, surfaced, and inflated their BCs. The dive master on board spotted Judy and realized she was floating away from the group. He called her to inflate her BC. She tried, but nothing happened when she pushed the button. She appeared to struggle on the surface, so the dive master yelled at her to orally inflate the BC, but she didn't listen. She began to struggle on the surface, flailing with one arm while she continued to try to use the power inflator. A moment later, she sank below the surface and disappeared. It took the boat crew a few minutes to get the other divers on board and organize a search for Judy. They got in the water as quickly as they could, but it took two hours of searching and additional emergency help before they found her unconscious underwater. Her tank was empty and she had drowned and she had all of the 30 pounds of lead still in place. Cause of death was ruled drowning by insufficient air. Now the analysis. It's not uncommon for divers trained in colder uh, climate to forget to adjust their weighting to compensate for water, warmer water, especially among new, less experienced divers. They tend to dive with the weight they learned with, forgetting the lesson they learned in their open water course. Do you have buoyancy check in the water when diving in a different environment or new equipment? It's also common in dive fatalities to find divers dead underwater with all their weights still in place. Even though ditching weights is another skill learned during open water training, Judy's case, the feeling of rising panic as she struggled to stay afloat while overweighted caused her forget to forget that she could simply pull the weight release handles and drop 24 pounds of lead. Even with the six pounds in her BC pockets, she would have been positively buoyant. Of course, the chain of events began when Judy ran out of air near the surface. If she had finished the dive with even a few hundred pounds of breathing gas in her tank, she could have inflated her BC on the surface, waited for the boat to pick her up. Or more likely, had she finished the dive with air in her tanks, she would not have bolted for the surface. She would have made contact with the trailing line, and she would have been able to inflate her BC and finish the dive tired but back on the boat. Panic situations typically involve cascading steps of increasing discomfort with a final trigger that sets things in motion. Even before the dive, 
She was uncomfortable because she was in a new environment. She was overweighted and struggled with buoyancy throughout the dive. That added to her agitation and discomfort, and she used more air than normal, struggling in the water. Final trigger is when she ran out of air on the water, bolted for the circuit, for the surface. And by the time she made it to the surface, she was likely in full panic and not thinking clearly. At this stage, she could have orally inflated her BC or ditched her weight and managed the situation. But the perceptual narrowing caused by the panic made it difficult for her to remember her training and even listen to the instructions of the dive master on board. So the bottom line and lessons for life, monitor your breathing gas. Running out of air underwater is a common trigger that leads to panic. Perform that buoyancy check. Anytime you change your gear configuration, move to a new dive environment, fresh water the salt, hold the warm, get in the water, and check your waiting needs. If you find yourself struggling on the surface and you can't inflate your BC, get rid of your weights. The cost of the weights you're carrying is not worth your life. Many dive accidents involve divers unconscious on the bottom with their weights in place. And last, ask for help. If you're diving in a new environment, seek the appropriate training, talk to the local dive master, explain your novice, and listen to what they talk. So would that happen to you? Or could that happen to you? Hopefully not. I, I learned a long time ago that uh, you want to be properly weighted. But how many people have you ever known to have dropped their weights in any condition other than by accident? I don't know of any. I do not either. I, Even I, when they've been in trouble and they admit they had a, a problem, you say, did you dump? Your, and they'll say, no. Because that's, that's at least a few dollars worth of lead there. You don't want to you know, have to go and get that back. Yeah. You know, but what's a uh, an ambulance ride? You know, $800, $1,000? Uh, uh, well, 30 pounds of lead is what? 60 bucks? Yeah. 65 bucks or so? But again, you're not thinking. Like they said, if you're in a panic mode, you're not thinking properly. And, and how many times have you been close to panic or you got that? Boy, I'm sure glad I got to the boat because I was really having a problem. You ever been there? I mean, you jump up the weather, you got three foot waves, didn't anticipate. You are heavy and you, it's like, but you don't get rid of the weight. Well, I've I've been heavy before. And usually it was uh, in my earlier dives. where You, you go off the, the back of the boat. And even with the, I, I can remember this one vividly, even having, my, my BC probably wasn't fully inflated, but I, I jumped in. And instead of popping right to the surface, you know, like you expect, I went to do the I'm okay signal, and I look, and I'm like five feet underwater. I was still slightly positive, but, you know, I, I went down like a rock. Did you inflate your BC before you went in? I did, but I obviously didn't do it enough. And that, along with being, in those days, I was probably five or six pounds routinely overweight, which makes it tough if you're, if you're diving a little overweight. I, I can remember times I've been out there and I have overextended myself and it could have gone bad. You know, it's like this is the cascade and being low on air, out of oh, air, yeah. can't get a good breath. You know, it doesn't take much to go click and now you're in a full bone. Oh my God. So I, I, it goes back to what I always say to me you got air, you got time. I have Anytime to, I'm going to be any way deep or anything, I have a bailout that I have checked to validate works. So I got that instead of panicking all of a sudden, mm -hmm. I got a moment to, okay, I got here, what, what's going on and what do I need to do? 
I, at least I hope that happens. Yeah, I, I'm always overly conservative on air, which I don't think that is even being overly conservative. Uh, you know, it's rare for me to come up with, I don't know if I've, it's in Lake Michigan, I can't remember the last time I came up with less than 500 pounds. There you go. Now, and, when and, we're talking shallow water river. Oh, yeah. yeah now we're, talking, we're, we're different, but by the same token, being aware that you don't have any air, you're already compensating. Well, that and also we the in the river, we're typically doing a lot of more more shallow dives. Yes. And how long is 500 pounds of air going to last you uh, when you're at 12 feet? Right. And, and we know well enough that if you're on the opposite side of the river, oh, you yeah. don't wait till you got the 500 pounds to go no, back. No. Yeah, there, there's at been least, many times I'll, I'll get halfway across and say, yeah, that we're done. I'm coming back. Because yeah. you, you can burn if you're if you're working hard. And you're moderately deep, you can go through a thousand pounds quickly. If you're fighting a current, absolutely. But you look at that, and can it happen to you? Maybe not. Not that exact scenario. But again, have you ever thought about dipping? You know, ditching your weights. How close have you come to? You should. You should have thought about that, and maybe got rid of them and go back and get them later. Right. Yeah, we've we've got divers, so we can go back and. If you're diving on a, a wreck in a lake, we're usually moored. So anything you drop, especially like a weight, is going to be within a, a 30, 40-foot radius of uh, that anchor line, typically, depending on the scope of, I guess, of the line. Uh, right. So you're right. going to get it back. And your life's worth a lot more than just a, a handful of weight. Why take a chance? So my two cents for the day. Very good points. And a more up upbeat note, hopefully everybody with this holiday weekend coming up, is able to find an excuse to get out and do some diving or at least get some diving on your calendar. Uh, you know, the sooner in the season you start diving, the more dives you're going to be able to get in. And this is May. It is the May. end of May. Uh, this is soggy for us in the Great Lakes area. It has been an unusual year again. Yeah, I, 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 I'm trying to just think of what a drought is like. Not to curse any farmers or anything, but, man, we are we are wet. Yeah, they haven't even, um, on my way from my house to the YMCA or that area, all the fields on both sides have not even been plowed because there's standing water in them. Yeah. Yeah, you got currents in these ditches. <laughs> That's. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have a bumper crop of uh, mosquitoes this year. That's oh, yeah, we were, we were talking about it. I think that was before the show, but mosquitoes are, are getting to be terrible. With all the flooding going on, you know, you, everybody fills up all those – uh, leftover tires that are hidden in the back property, and you get water going in there, and mosquitoes love that, breeding in that, breeding in pails, little tiny bits of water. I've also noticed that flies are pretty terrible. Yeah. And it's been raining so much the last uh, week and a half that it's been a week and a half since I mowed, and we're at the time of year where you got to mow every five or six days or you've lost it, and uh, it's going to be a, a busy weekend. Yep. Well, so. I don't have anything to, to plug myself other than, again, the mermaid mm-hmm. event in South Haven. Yep. And, uh, you know, as, as we always like to say, make sure you're going out there and support your local dive shops. I need to go and do that. And uh, don't don't leave your tanks here for, for six months, which is what I've done. So I need to go in there and pick those up. Uh, and uh, SAS has published theirs. I put it on the club site. They're Wednesday night dives. Uh-huh. Still have Thursday Thursdays, so that's two days right there, and then you got the weekends for wreck diving. Come on, guys! Yeah, 
plenty of opportunity. I just need to get rid of this thing called work. <laughs> if I got rid of work, both home and at work, I, I would I would have more time to dive. I'll have to ask all the retired divers in the club. Is, is, speaking of retired divers, has Ken been getting out there at all? Nope. Uh, Ken is pretty much out of it. <laughs> uh, he's working more now than he did when he was employed. But like he said, he's doing stuff he wants to. Yeah, it, and it's more I enjoyable. Mean, well, right. I mean, he's he's working on a lot of cars, and he's doing that wrecker work now. Uh, yeah. Then he picks up wrecked. I mean, he, he's enjoying what he's doing, and that's the other key. Yeah. He's doing something that, even though it's not diving. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think we, we should just about end it for the night. If you've been enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help us out, head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to our Patreon page, and any amount would be appreciated. $3 or more will get you early access to the show notes. Uh, we understand if you can't, but we certainly appreciate if you can. It helps keep us on the air and keep us going. And, and also give us some feedback. Uh, if you if you like the show, drop us a line at the show at scubaobsessed.com and uh, give us some feedback. Let us know what you want to see more of, less of, etc. cetera. Uh, also, we love those five-star reviews. That, that helps promote us, and the more listeners we get, the better off we are. So I think we've got a – it's a bad joke, but it's another one of those where I'm trying to figure out if it's funny or not. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, and and some of these may get me in trouble. They may somebody may come back later and say, "What are you, an idiot?" Which it won't be the first time I've heard that. Uh, so here we go. A guy walks into a store and buys a six buy six jumbo boxes of condoms. The store clerk asks the man, "What are you going to do with all those?" The guy replies, "I taught my dog to swallow them, and now when he craps, it's in little plastic baggies." <laughs> <laughs> That that would be good if it worked. I, that's what I'm. I, I, I you you have seen what one of the new fads for kids are, haven't you? No. You seriously? What the they Tide Pods one? The condom through their nose oh, and no. bring it out their mouth. Oh, you got to be kidding me! I am not kidding you. That's honest to God truth. I mean, between that and Tide Pods, I don't know what these kids are are thinking. Obviously, they're not. It's like, so some guys are going to challenge me to do what? No. It's like, come on, people. Look that up if you don't believe me, by the way. Uh, I, I just can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. How do you explain that to you? Well, how did your son die? Well, he was inhaling a condom through his nose. Uh. Well, how, Our guys in Australia is going to listen to us. Them damn Americans are crazy. <laughs> we, we, couldn't, we, could, we couldn't do it. Well, here, here why, why don't we do uh, one more joke? So we'll do Go that for one. It. Okay. A reverend awoke one morning to find a dead donkey in his front yard. He had no idea how it got there, but he knew he had to get rid of it. He called the sanitation department, the health department, and several other agencies, but no one seemed to be able to help him. In desperation, a good reverend called the mayor and asked what he should be done. The mayor said, why bother me? You're a clergyman. It's your job to bury the dead. The reverend lost his cool. Yes, he snapped. But I thought I should at least notify his next of kin. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, yeah, that one isn't quite as bad. And at least I, I, I know to laugh at that one. So, until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs>